0: Our scripture reading this morning is uh, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me.
1: Our Lord and Savior, I'm so grateful for the powerful word that you spoke to your precious disciple, Peter, so long ago, and I'm so grateful that your word is a living word, and I know in my heart, Father, that you mean to speak this word powerfully into the lives of some of us now. So I pray, Father, for those who are here this morning, I pray for those who will listen online, I pray that as your word goes out, that your spirit would also go out, and I pray, Lord, that you would grip hearts and transform lives by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit, and I thank Thank you for what you will do in the name of Jesus Christ we pray amen failure let's start there failure is a universal human experience because humans are universally weak we're weak in our minds and so sometimes when we're even in the midst of a sentence we forget what we are saying has this ever happened to you you're trying to describe something to somebody, the train derails, you cannot rerail the train, you have no idea what you're trying to say. Your mind is weak. Sometimes we're listening to someone, we can't understand what they're saying, or we'll take a test and fail it because our minds are weak. So sometimes failure is a fruit of a weak mind. Our affections are weak. So sometimes we have passion for the right things, but in the wrong measure. Other times we have passion for the wrong things, and in the wrong measure. And because of that, we often fail to do the things that God would have us do or even that others would have us do. We're weak in our will. How many people in our country made New Year's resolutions just three weeks ago? It's only January 20th today, and I'll bet you that there are a number of people who those resolutions are so off the rail, they're not rescuable now. And this is a matter of the will. We have all kinds of intentions, things we want to do, but we just don't have that drive. We don't have the umph. we don't have the, 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 the character sometimes to follow through and do the things that we said. We're weak, and so sometimes we fail because our will fails. Failure is a universal human experience because we are weak in so many ways. But there's a particular kind of failure that is not only difficult, but I think has the potential of actually being devastating. It has the potential of of paralyzing people. And the kind of failure I'm talking about this morning is our failure of the Lord. Now, in some sense, all of our failure is a failure of God But I have in mind this morning those times when we'll, let's say, take a vow to the Lord and promise him that we're going to do something and then we don't follow through and we don't do the thing that we said we were going to do. Even though he might have been pleased with our vow, even though he might have given us all the resources we need to follow through on it, we did not follow through. We failed the Lord. I'm thinking of times where we have boasted in our hearts or maybe subtly boasted to others or maybe not so subtly boasted to others about how much we love the Lord and how much we care about His Word and how much we want to do the things of God, only to find ourselves failing and putting God not first in our lives, but second or tenth or twenty-fifth in our lives. When we fail the Lord in this way and we realize that sometimes our hearts are arrogant and we actually blame God for it, or we blame other people for it, or we blame circumstances, we defend ourselves, we build our walls, we try to justify our failures. But When, by the grace of God, some humility grips our hearts and we see our failure of God for what it is, namely tragic and sad, then sometimes we can be not only sad, but actually devastated. I have seen people feel totally paralyzed because they have failed God. Failure of God can be a very powerful and paralyzing thing. But God has a good word for us this morning. And that word is not that our failure doesn't matter. Our failure does matter. In fact, I would think that when we fail God, if we fail to grieve, something's wrong. We ought to grieve failure of God. We ought to be sad about that. We, we ought to be contrite about that. We ought to feel the power of that. But he has a better word for us today. It's a word that he spoke to his disciple Peter so many years ago, and it's a word that I know in my heart that he wants to speak to us this morning. And that word is this. Grace triumphs over failure. Grace wins, beloved. Grace is gonna win. And I'm not just talking now about grace over sin. I'm talking about grace over failure. I'm talking about people who already know the Lord and who are gonna be with the Lord forever. Grace is going to triumph over your failure in God. Grace wins. So let's talk about Peter, and then we'll bring this back around at the end. Sometime after his resurrection... Jesus revealed himself at least twice to his, or his, his closest disciples in the city of Jerusalem. You remember the stories. We've looked at them over the last few weeks. Then he appeared to them again by the shores of the Sea of Galilee where he had told them to go and, and meet them. They had been out fishing all night with no success. But as the sun peeked over the horizon, they looked over and they saw a man standing by the shore. The man asked them if they had caught any fish. They said no, but he said, listen, just cast the net off to the right of the boat. They did that, and by the power, the miraculous power of God, they took in 153 very large fish in the blink of an eye. And when that happened, John realized, and then Peter realized, and then they all realized, that man is Jesus. Jesus is the one standing by the shore. And so they made their way to the shore, and when they got there, Jesus invited them to gather around him, with him around a fire that he had built on the shore, He told them to bring some of the fish. They cooked up the fish. They cooked up the bread. They celebrated a meal together. And as I said last week, what was happening here is that Jesus was revealing his very self, his being, his character through his miraculous power so that he could welcome them into the fellowship he just won for them on the cross. He was not trying to put on a show by providing all these fish. He was not just trying to have a meal with people that he loved as if that was the main thing happening. He was gathering around that fire so that they could feel the warmth of the fire and know that they had a greater warmth in their life now. Reconciliation with God. Because of what he did on Calvary, all these men were now right with God forever and ever. Revelation, power, fellowship. That's what last week's message was all about. When that meal of celebration came to an end, Jesus turned his attention to Peter and he addressed Peter in the hearing of the other disciples. Now John doesn't say this real explicitly but when you read the story carefully and just sort of read it as naturally as possible, the picture is not that Jesus took Peter away The picture is that they're sitting around the fire together and Jesus addresses Peter in front of them all just in the same way he had addressed Thomas in front of them all not so long before. Jesus is now dealing with Peter's heart in front of the other disciples. And he looks at him, he calls him by his birth name, Simon, and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now in the Greek language, that question is ambiguous, and that's why it's ambiguous in English too. Translators could actually help us make it a little less ambiguous, but then I think they would not really be fair to the text. And so what does he mean by, do you love me more than these? Well, there are three possibilities. First of all, the Lord might be saying, do you love me more than these things? And if that's what he's saying, he's talking about the net He's talking about the fish. He's talking about the boat. He's talking about the fishing industry. He's talking about the way of life Peter had known all the way up until he met Jesus. And if he means this, he's saying to Peter, do you love your former way of life more or do you love me more? Are you loyal to who you used to be or are you loyal to who I want you to be? Are you gonna follow your own will or are you gonna follow my will? Now this way of understanding the question depends upon thinking that when the disciples went out fishing that night, that they were actually uh, going back to their former way of life because they had given up hope that Jesus would return to them. But I tried to show you last week that I don't think the disciples had given up hope. I don't think they went fishing because they were going back to their former careers. I think they were waiting on Jesus. They became hungry, and so they went fishing. Jesus never rebuked them for this, he never said anything about it. Actually, he used their fishing expedition as, an, as a way through which he revealed his glory to them. So I, I'm 100% sure that this is not what Jesus meant by the question, and so by faith, I scratched it out for you. This is not an option. Second possibility. Do you love me more than these people? One way that you could understand that is, Peter, do you love me more than you love these other people? Or do you love those people more than you love me? Are you more loyal to me, Peter, or are you more loyal to these disciples? Do you want your life with them more than you want your life with me? Are you gonna follow along with them more than you follow along with me? Peter, where is your primary loyalty in life? And I will tell you linguistically, this is a possibility that this is what Jesus means by the question, but I don't think it's very likely because nowhere in the Gospel of John or in any of the other Gospels is this an issue in Peter's life So whether he's loyal to the other disciples or loyal to Jesus, it's just, this is not a tension in the Gospels at all. So I'm about 75% sure that this is not the right one, so we're going to scratch that one out as well. We come to now the third option, where Jesus may be saying, do you love me, Peter, more than these other people love me? Do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Now I think that this understanding of the text, of the question, makes most sense of the text because of some things Peter said before all this transpired. So in the hours before Jesus went to offer up his life as the once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, here's a couple things Peter said, first from Matthew. Then Jesus said to them all, to the disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Do you hear what he's saying? These other people love you. I have a greater love for you. Let them fall away. Judas is already gone. He has forsaken the Lord. He betrayed the Lord. He never truly knew the Lord. He's gone. We got 11 guys left in the room. He's looking at the other ten and saying, they may have a kind of love for you, but I have a tremendous love for you. Let them all fall away. I will never fall away. And then you remember what John told us happened in this same time as well. Jesus said, I'm going to somewhere where you can't follow. And Peter said, what are you talking about? I'll follow you anywhere. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Peter is saying, I love you more than these other guys love you. And so I think that Jesus is looking to him and saying, Peter, do you truly love me more than, you, more than these other people love me? Now that all this stuff is behind us, now that your words have had some kind of expression in real life, now that everything has transpired, let me ask you this question again, Peter. Simon, he called him, do you really love me more than these other people Love me. Now, there was some reason for Peter to say, well, I guess I showed that I did because you remember after they left that other room and they went into the garden, it was Peter, when the, when the temple police came to arrest Jesus, it was Peter who took a sword out of, his, out of his side here and struck one of the temple police in risk of his life to save his Lord. He was braver than the others. And when they arrested Jesus and drew him away, nine of these guys scattered to the wind and it was only John and Peter who followed Jesus to the courtyard where he was arrested, where he was tried, I mean. Peter was in some way demonstrating a, a greater love, but you know, it's hard to know what the motives of his heart were, but there was some actions there. But just after that, I mean seconds after that, when truly his life was on the line, He denied knowing Jesus not only once, not twice, but three times. And one of the other Gospels tells us that when he denied it for the third time, the rooster crowed and Jesus looked at him right in the eyes. Can you imagine that moment? You fail God for the third time in front of other people. You deny you even know him. Imagine you're at work or something and people are questioning you about your christianity you deny that you're a christian you deny that you know jesus and just that moment one of your christian co-workers walks by and looks you straight in the eye and then imagine that it was jesus who came and looked you straight in the eye that would have been a powerful moment and that was a moment for peter despite all of his boasting he failed greatly simon son of john do you truly do you truly love me more than these other men love me I'm persuaded that this is what Jesus meant by the question and that Peter understood what he was saying. I don't think this was ambiguous to them. For non-native Greek speakers and and even for English speakers, it's a little ambiguous, but I don't think it was ambiguous to Peter. And so in my mind's eye, he either hung his head or he looked at Jesus a little sheepishly, and he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So notice that Peter did affirm his love for Jesus, But he stopped short of saying that he loved Jesus more than anybody else. He had a lot of pride left in him. And if you know anything about Peter's life, you'll know he had plenty of struggles left to come. But I do think that the days of him boasting of himself over against others were in the rearview mirror. God had humbled this man and he was humble indeed. And so he didn't talk about himself in relationship to others. He just said, Lord, you know that I love you. Now the word here for know actually means to see. So you have seen that I love you is what it really literally says. And this makes sense to us because we use our English word see in this way too, don't we? If we say, I understand you, I see what you mean, I know what you mean, then they're all basically saying the same thing. And so in a sense, Peter's just saying, you, you know all things, you have seen all things. But I have a sense that Peter actually has something more literal in mind here. I think he's literally saying, Lord, you have seen things. You, you have seen the fruit of my love for you you saw that I was one of the ones that ran to the tomb as soon as the, na- as soon as the news came to us. You saw me inside that tomb. You saw the stirrings of my heart. You saw me when I went back to the place where I was staying. You you saw me marveling, wondering, musing about what in the world I had just seen. You saw me in that secured room not only once but twice and you interacted with me in the presence of the other disciples. Lord, you've, you've seen all these things. You saw my obedience when I led us to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee. You saw me lead the disciples to wait upon you in faith. You saw me jump out out of that boat and rush to you so that I'd be the first to get to you. You saw me be the first to run out and grab that net filled with fish and do everything that I could to drag that thing to shore. You have seen that I love you, Lord. Lord, you know all things, and you have seen, you have seen. I think that's what Peter's saying, and I think Jesus actually understood. And so he said to him in verse 15, feed my lambs. What I hear Jesus saying is, Simon, if you want to demonstrate your love to me through your actions, I want to give you a better way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to feed my lambs. The word here for lambs, you know, you know a lamb is just a little sheep, or maybe you don't know. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm not a farmer. I must admit, I had to look it up. <laughs> What's the difference between a sheep and a lamb? A lamb's just a little sheep. Some of you are looking at me and saying, man, these stupid city people, how could he not know that? But I didn't know that. But I think metaphorically, Jesus is talking about new believers. He's saying, Peter, I've already told you to go be a fisher of men and women, so go out into the world, preach the gospel. When that happens, people are gonna come to me, and here's what I want you to do, Peter. Demonstrate your love for me by loving them, and I want you to love them by feeding them. They're gonna crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. Every true believer craves the spiritual milk of the word of God. I'm taking those words from something Peter wrote later. And Peter, I want you to feed them. I want you to grow them up. Demonstrate your love for me by loving those who belong to me. They're my sheep. I am the good shepherd. But now I want you to be an under-shepherd. And I want you to come and feed these little lambs. Before we press on in the story here, I want to take a minute to help us understand. Because I think if we misunderstand what Jesus is up to, we're going to miss the whole point of the story. This is now the third time Jesus has appeared to Peter, at least, there could have been other stories that we weren't told about. John says this twice in his book that there's much that he didn't write about, but as far as what we know, this is the third time Jesus has seen Peter after the resurrection. We have to assume from the nature of their interaction and from the nature of Peter's passion to reach Jesus that Jesus had already spoken forgiveness over Peter Jesus had already restored Peter to a place of fellowship with him. Please don't miss this point. I think that in those two appearances in the room, when Jesus said, peace be with you, I think that at some point, Jesus drew Peter aside, looked him straight in the eyes and said, peace be with you, my brother. I saw your denials and I forgive you. My grace has triumphed over your sin. And that's done. I made the sacrifice for you and you're good with me. So I don't think that this story here by the shore of the Sea of Galilee is about forgiveness and restoration to relationship. That's already happened. What's happening here is Jesus is reinstating him to public ministry. And please don't let this pass you by. Jesus is saying, Peter, your failure of God has not disqualified you from participation in the kingdom of God. Peter, you already know that you're forgiven, but I want you to know something else. You are not useless. Your sin has not canceled the deal that I'm gonna give you gifts and I'm gonna send you to use those gifts and you're gonna bear tremendous fruit through those gifts for the glory of my name and the good of others and the joy of your soul. The deal's still on, Peter. My grace is triumphing over your failure, not just your sin, You have not been excluded from service in the kingdom of God. Please have ears to hear, beloved. That's what's happening. In front of the other disciples, Peter is being reinstated. He's not like Judas, who never truly knew the Lord, who forsook the Lord, who betrayed the Lord, and is forever under the judgment of the Lord. He's not like him. Peter truly knew God, and for those who know God, failure is not final. Amen. And so, beloved, the word Jesus is speaking to Peter is the word he's speaking to us right here this morning. Grace triumphs over failure, even our failure of God. Even when we fail God himself, we are not excluded from service in his kingdom. There are certain kinds of sin that exclude us from certain kinds of ministries, but that doesn't mean we're out altogether. I know people who have, who have sinned in some horrible ways that are excluded, I think, forever from being, let's say, a pastor. Certain kinds of sin exclude you from certain kinds of service, but what I'm saying is your sin, if you are truly in Christ, does not exclude you from all service in the kingdom of God. Grace triumphs over failure. Let the word resound in your heart, beloved. Now, John doesn't tell us how much time passed between verses 15 and verse 16. But as I've imagined this story over and again, in my mind's eye, I think Jesus probably remained silent long enough to let the tension really rise. So if you're in the disciples' shoes here, I think you're thinking, why did Jesus ask Peter that question, do you love me more than these? And what does he mean, feed my lambs? What's he talking about? We know from upper room discourse and other things that the Lord loved to teach things that actually confuses the disciples. And I think this is a technique that helps to arouse attention. It gets people to pay attention to what's happening. It gets them to think about it. I love this about him. He is not afraid to confuse people who love him and whom he loves, because he's trying to get us to think. He's not just being cruel. And I really think around that fire, they thought, okay, I don't get it. What's he saying? So silence allows tension to rise and when the moment is just right, he asks the same question again. Simon, son of John, I'm gonna ask you again, do you love me? This time he doesn't say more than these but I think he's asking essentially the same question. Peter understands it exactly the same way and he answers in the exact same words. Yes, Lord, you know, you have seen that I love you. End of response. And now Jesus just says back to him, Tend my sheep. First feed my lambs, now tend my sheep. The word for tend here is the word for pastor. It's a word that will later be used to refer to people who have my job, an elder, a pastor, a bishop. All three of these words in Greek are interchangeable words. He's telling P- Peter, I want you to be a pastor. I want you to shepherd my people. And now he uses the word sheep that refers not to little ones, not to new believers, but refers to full-grown in in their language, domestic sheep as opposed to wild sheep. Jesus is talking about those who belong to him, those whom the Father has given to him. And he's saying, Peter, I have a great job for you. I want you to feed my lambs, but I also want you to lead my sheep. I want you to rise up and be a shepherd. You have this passion in you. You're the first one to jump out of the boat. You're the first one to drag the fish. You, by my grace, are a natural leader, and now I'm gonna put upon that the power of my spirit. And Peter, I want you to demonstrate your love for me by leading my people. They're my people. They're not your people. I am the good shepherd and I want you to serve as an under shepherd and I want you to lead them and I would say by feeding them. I want you to lead them by my word. I want you to guide them into pastures by my word. I want you to send them on a mission by my word. I want you to be a pastor, Peter. The first one Jesus ever spoke those words to. I want you to be a pastor, Peter. And I want you to be that by my tremendous grace. I don't think Peter or the others really got what Jesus was doing. Not yet. At the day of Pentecost and afterwards, they looked back and said, whoa, that's what Jesus was saying. Because Peter rose up to a place of great prominence. He rose up to be one of the great pillars of the church. But that role was first given to him right here by the shores of Galilee, beloved. His role was a fruit of the calling Jesus put on his life. And I want to say to you again, this powerful word for Peter is the same word for us. Yes, his role is distinct from us. Even though Jesus issued a call to me early in my walk with him, that I too was gonna be a pastor, I don't have the same type of calling to that that Peter did. My call is distinct from Peter's call and his from me and ours from you. The call itself is distinct. This word is universal. Grace triumphs over failure. Even our failure of God We probably have been persuaded that the grace of God in Christ poured out on Calvary is enough to forgive our sins forever. But do you believe in your heart that that grace is powerful enough to qualify you for service in his kingdom? Because it is. Your failure is not greater than his grace. Do not be defined by it and do not look to it more than you look to your Lord. I have sensed for the last few days as I have prayed over this message that some of you need to hear this so powerfully and deeply in your hearts. Grace triumphs over failure. Receive the word of the Lord, beloved. Again, John doesn't tell us how much time transpires between verse 16 and verse 17, but I think the Lord again let the tension rise. why did he say it again? What's he talking about? Tend my lambs, tend my sheep, what's, he, what's Jesus saying? But when the moment is just right, he draws yet another breath and he asks the same exact question for the third time. Simon, son of John, I ask you again, do you love me, do you love me? Now, in this instance, in the Greek text, Jesus actually chooses a different word for love than he's used in the other two questions. And this has given rise to a number of interpretations of this text that I don't think are accurate, but you've probably heard. I normally wouldn't want to go into this much linguistic detail, but I'm certain that some of you, maybe many of you, have heard a sermon along this particular line. And I want to kind of walk you through that and help you understand why it's probably not the best way to understand this text. So let me start by talking about the words here for love. In the Greek language of Jesus' day, there were four words that were used for love there was agape. There was philos, there was eros, and there was a lesser-known word, storge. Agape, philos, eros, storge. The first two words, agape and philos, are used in this text in different ways. And so I'm going to focus my attention on those, and I want to put a chart up here to kind of show you how this goes. In verse 15, Jesus said, to you "Agapas me? That's the verbal form. Peter answers with the verbal form, you know that I philo you. Verse 16, do you agapas me? Peter answers, you know that I philo you. Verse 17, Jesus changes the verb. Do you philis me? Peter answers, you know that I philo you. Now, you've probably heard it said that agape is a higher form of love than philos love, that agape is a full soul, heart, mind kind of love, and philos is more of a friendship love. But the problem with that way of thinking uh, about these words is that it's really not true to how the Greek language was used and it's not even true to how these words were used in the Bible itself. So in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, agape and philos are used interchangeably. The, the, when, the, when the Bible talks about the love of God, sometimes agape is used, sometimes philos is used. They're used interchangeably. There's not this massive distinction between the two. In the common street Greek of the day, I'm not talking about philosophers now who love to make fine distinctions, I'm just talking about normal people talking on the street, they would use agape and philos almost completely interchangeably. It's just a stylistic difference between the two words, not any really substantial difference. And then probably most importantly, in the Gospel of John, these words are used interchangeably. When Jesus says the father loves the son, sometimes he uses agape, sometimes he uses philos. He's not saying that the father has a greater and lesser love. He's just choosing two different words to say the same thing. When John says that Jesus loved Lazarus, sometimes he uses the one word, sometimes he uses the other. And again, he's not saying Jesus has different levels of love for Lazarus. He's just using two words to say the same thing. And then when John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, he interchanges the words, sometimes using one, sometimes using the other. So when Jesus said for the third time, do you fillize me? Sometimes the way the teaching goes is that Jesus was asking him, Peter, do you have this great agape love for me? And Peter was saying, well, not really, Lord, but I have this philos level love for you. And then finally, the third time, Jesus would say, well, do you even really have that philos level love? And Peter is grieved to the heart. He's really grieved to the heart. And the way that teaching goes is that he's grieved to the heart because Jesus has changed the word and he's questioning his love. But I really don't think that's what's happening in this text. Peter was grieved when Jesus asked the question for the third time, but his grief wasn't because of a change in word choice. His grief was because Jesus asked the question for the third time. Inside of his heart, he felt ashamed powerfully ashamed of what he had done. Think about being so bold as Peter to say, they'll all fall away, I will never fall away. And then just like that, you fall away. The shame he felt was powerful. And then this conversation's happening in front of people. He's embarrassed. Wouldn't you be embarrassed? The Lord's calling you out, calling you out, calling you out in front of your brothers and you don't really understand what he's up to. You don't get that he's not so much questioning you as he is appointing you. Beloved, he was ashamed and he was embarrassed. And this is why he felt so struck to the heart. This is why. And so he said, he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Or if I could sort of over translate how this is written. Lord, you yourself have seen everything. You yourself know that I love you. Lord, why do you keep asking this question? Lord, please stop. Please stop. You've seen it all. You know it all. Why must you continue to ask me, Lord, you know that I loved you, and I do love you. Peter was ashamed, and he was embarrassed, and Jesus knew this well. But I want us to see something here. I think this is very instructive for us. As emotionally raw as Peter was in this moment, do you notice Jesus never speaks to his emotions? He never meets Peter right where he's at in sort of tries to relieve the embarrassment in a fleshly way, I really take something from this because often I will look at the Lord and say, Lord, don't you see how I'm feeling? Don't you see what I'm going through? Address me on my terms. (laughs) And Jesus says, no, I will address you on my terms. I know you better than you know yourself. I know the situation better than you know yourself. I shall address you on my terms. Peter, Jesus left Peter's emotions as raw as they could be and he just kept pressing on. And he said to him, he responded to him, then Peter, feed my sheep. He's combining the first two. Feed my lambs, lead my sheep. And now he's saying, feed my sheep. And again, I say to you, I think what Jesus is saying is I'm the good shepherd, come and be an under shepherd. And I want you to lead my people by feeding my people. I don't want you to be some CEO of a religious corporation and try to grow some organization on the power of marketing. I want you to lead by feeding I want you to lead by the word of God. I want you to give them the pure spiritual milk of the word so that they'll nourish and grow in the way that I want them to grow. Beloved, Jesus is telling Peter the deal's not off and his failure has not excluded him from service in the kingdom of God. And having said this, having had so much grace for his precious child, he then prophesied, about Peter's death. And this might seem jarring to us, this might not seem like an act of love, but I wanna suggest to you, this is actually a further act of the outpouring of grace upon Peter. Here's what Jesus said. Truly, truly I say to you, or in Greek it says amen, 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 amen. I affirm what I'm gonna say right now with such passion, with such fervor. Truly, truly I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Peter, when you were young, you were self-willed and you were free to move about the cabin. But when you're old, you're going to be constrained and someone else is gonna take a hold of you and they're gonna force you to endure something that will not be enjoyable to endure in itself, but you will submit to it. I'm reading in a little bit now because you are submitted to my will. It's gonna be good news. Peter, the day is coming when you are gonna lay down your life for me. This is the measure of my grace toward you. Now, these words, you will stretch out your hands, do really seem to imply crucifixion. And later, a couple of church leaders came along and told us that that is what happened to Peter. Clement of Rome said that he was killed under Nero probably in 64 to 66 AD. Another leader, Tertullian, came along later and said that he was crucified. Now, you've probably heard that Peter was crucified upside down. Have many of you heard, heard that story? Well, that actually comes, as it turns out, from a text that's extremely unreliable. It tells all kinds of fanciful stories about Peter that are certainly not true. So he may or may not have been crucified upside down. The Romans did do that from time to time. But I, I just it doesn't really matter, is the bottom line. It doesn't matter if he's crucified straight up or sideways or upside down. It doesn't matter. What matters is that he got the privilege of being like his Lord and stretching out his hands and dying. Do you remember what he said? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, here's the measure of my love for you. I will lay down my life for you. But then what happened? He didn't do it. As soon as he got the chance to demonstrate the measure of his love, he shrank back. And not only did he fail to die, but he denied even knowing Jesus three times in a row. Bam, bam, bam. Jesus looks at him at the third denial like, so you're gonna lay down your life for me, Peter? You are? But in his grace, Jesus then went to the cross and what did he do with regard to Peter? He laid down his life for Peter, right? It says in John 13, 1, that Jesus having loved his own now loved them all the way to the end. Peter said, Jesus basically says to Peter, no, Peter, I'm gonna show you the measure of my love for you. And here it is. I'm gonna go lay down my life and I'm not gonna shrink back. In obedience to my Father, I will not shrink back. I will take up my cross and I will follow my Father all the way to the moment of my death. And when I'm there, I will give up my spirit to him and I will say, it is finished, to tell us die. It is done. And in this way, I will show you the measure of my value for my father and I will show you the measure of my love for you. I will do that. And now having done that, do you see the grace of what Jesus is doing to Peter? Jesus is saying, I know that you love me so much that you actually would die for me. You want that, but before in your flesh, you didn't have the power to do that. You were incapable. Now what I'm telling you is, is that by what I have done for you, you're gonna be able to do what you wanted to do for me. I am actually going to allow you to lay down your life for me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said prophetically when he was 21 years old, 21 years old. I did a long paper in college about his dissertation that he wrote at 21, it made me sick. I felt so behind, this guy was brilliant. He said at 21 years old, the greatest love, the greatest privilege in the kingdom is to be able to lay down your life for Jesus. I don't think he understood that he was gonna get that privilege. And maybe on the surface, this doesn't seem like a privilege to us, but it is a great privilege. And Jesus is saying, because of what I've done for you, I'm gonna give this further grace to you. I'm gonna allow you to demonstrate your love for me like that. And and that happened, that happened. Everybody, everybody that was there at that time reports that it happened. This is the measure of God's love for Peter. Now, having said these things to Peter, given him a job, prophesied his earthly destiny, the way that I read the last two words Jesus spoke to Peter at this moment is by showing him how to fulfill all these things. He didn't tell him to go to a training. He didn't tell him to pump himself up. He didn't give him a lot of to-dos. He said two words that also universally apply to every follower of Christ, follow me, follow me. We're gonna see next week that in part Jesus meant this literally because they stood up and began walking on the shore and John followed along and Peter was a little upset about that, so we'll deal with that next week. But in addition to the literal meaning, Jesus is saying something more profound. He's saying this is the way of life I want you to live. When I was on the earth, Peter, here's how I lived. I looked to my Father, I sought my Father, I had communion with my Father, and I listened to Him. And I only did the things that He showed me to do, and I only said the things that He gave me to say. That's how I lived my life. I followed the Father, and now what I'm telling you is I want you to live that way too. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Draw near to me day by day. Pray. Pray. Read my word, listen to my spirit. I will instruct you and guide you in the way that you should go. And when I do, walk in that way. I will tell you the things to say. And when I do, say them. Do not be afraid. Do not shrink back. Say the things that I gave you to say. Peter, follow me. Enter into the joy of fulfilling your calling through communion with me. This is a universal word to every believer, beloved. We have different types of calling, but the word is the same, follow me, look to me, gain your instruction from me, and then serve me in the world as I instruct you in that way. I hope that you can see the power of the grace that is overwhelming our brother in Christ, the Apostle Peter. Grace triumphs over failure. Failure is not the defining thing in our lives. The grace of God in Christ, that is the defining thing in our lives. May this word set us free today. I'm sure that Peter didn't understand the fullness of what Christ was up to, and I'm sure that after Pentecost, he was aware. I think Peter saw with his eyes what Jesus was trying to do by the shore. And when he was old and had arisen to leadership, he wrote a letter to the early church and he said some things that are just so amazingly connected with the story that I wanna read them for you now. If you have a Bible, will you please turn with me to First Peter chapter five. I wanna read for you verses one through seven. And as I read these words, just think about what Jesus said to him by the shore. Of course, Peter didn't understand in that moment, but Jesus understood. And I think as Peter worked out the fullness of what Jesus was up to, he wrote some things and they're very helpful for us. First Peter, chapter five, starting in verse one. So, I exhort the elders, the pastors, the shepherds among you, as a fellow elder, the apostle Peter telling guys like me, I'm a fellow elder with you, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's my charge to you, elders, shepherd, the flock of God that is among you. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, when the good shepherd, when the Lord Jesus Christ appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now he talks to everybody in the church. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he might exalt you, he might lift you up, he might restore you to the place that he has for you. You might see with your own eyes that grace triumphs over failure. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now in the first part of this passage, Peter's addressing men who like him were called by Jesus to serve as under shepherds in the flock of God. As I have prayed this week over this text, I've had the sense in my heart that the Lord wants to actually issue a call to some people who are hearing my voice right now, either live or, or over the internet. I really believe that. God has, every time I've prayed about this, God has gripped my heart with this. I think that like Peter, Jesus wants to meet some of you right where you're at and say the deal is not off. Your failure is not the defining aspect of your life. My calling upon you is the defining aspect upon your life and then he'll issue that call to you. And I don't know what it is. There's many different types of calls. But I am comfortable saying that I'm sure some of you, your heart is gripped right now that God has a calling for you. And I just wanna tell you, surrender to him, listen to him, receive his grace. Like Peter, he might stir up your heart a little bit so that you're like, what are you talking about? Why are you saying this? Why do you keep repeating it? What are you doing in my life right now? This isn't easy for me, Lord. And he might say to you, yes, I know it's not easy, but this is really good. This is really good. I've given you a place in the kingdom. Let me grip my, your heart with my calling upon your life. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is calling you to something right now, surrender to him. That's my word for you because I think that's Peter's word. Listen to the Lord and surrender your heart. Follow Jesus. In the second part of this passage, Peter's addressing all believers and he's essentially teaching us the way to receive forgiveness, restoration, and reinstatement in ministry from Jesus. And it's simple, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter learned this lesson by the shore. The difference between Judas and Peter is mainly that Peter truly belonged to Jesus, that's true. But from a human point of view, one was utterly arrogant and the other found humility by the grace of God. And I think what Peter is saying is that the way To receive the blessing of God in your life that overcomes your failure is simply by humbling yourself before him. Of course, humility is a gift of God. It only comes by grace. If God's grace had not overwhelmed us, none of us would humble ourselves before God, that's true. And yet the command still comes to us, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. I don't know what you all have been through. I don't know the types of failure that are paralyzing to you right now, but whatever that is, I wanna encourage you to come into God's presence and don't deny your failure. Humble yourself about your failure. Say to God that you have failed. Confess to him all the nature of it and then ask him to do for you what he did for Peter and to reinstate you by the shore as, as it were. Humble yourself in the sight of God and then God makes a promise to you. In due time, he will lift you up. It might be a process, but in due time, he will lift you up. Oh, beloved, hear the powerful word of God today. Grace triumphs over failure, even our failure of God. Father, we thank you for the breadth and power of what took place on the cross. We thank you for demonstrating your grace in practical ways in Peter's life. And we pray, Father, that as this word seeps into our hearts, that we'll receive it and that you will do powerful things with it. I pray, Father, that some who really need to accept your forgiveness and restoration right now, that they would do that. I pray that some who need to to submit themselves to your calling would do that. I pray that some who just need to, to be able to receive your grace, that you still see them as usable. I pray that they would trust in your word about them more than in their feelings about themselves. Oh, Father, break chains and set people free today. And for what you will do, I give you my thanks and praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.